This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another one-on-one from Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am joined today by Mika Oyang of uh, The Third Way, where she runs the National Security Program. Um, I, I suspect you were as shocked as everybody else was with the departure of Nikki Haley. And of course, we immediately went into the very serious business of determining whether she would be replaced by Ivanka Trump or Kanye West or whomever. Um, but, but I think there's a bigger issue. Uh, and the bigger issue is that we are literally three, four weeks away from a fairly massive shift in the foreign policy apparatus of the United States. And it's going to take at least two forms. One form is going to be the president of the United States is going to ha- see substantial change in his cabinet or senior advisor ranks. Now, John Bolton's probably not going anywhere. Mike Pompeo's not. Um, but we now have a U.N. ambassador to replace. We will probably have an attorney general to replace. And we may have a secretary of defense to replace. Uh, and that's, that's going to be fairly substantial, particularly with the secretary of defense. And then at the same time, seems pretty likely, that the House of Representatives of the United States is going to see its leadership change and shift to the Democrats. And the Democrat agenda in the House of Representatives is going to be very different from the Republican agenda uh, and very different from the Trump administration agenda, particularly if, as he resets that team, uh, it moves a little closer uh, to him, to, to, to sort of the, the more isolationist, hawkish views of people like Bolton. So, Mika, I, I was wondering, perhaps we could break that into two parts. I'd love to hear what you th- where you think we are going with the next national security cabinet and then with the next Congress. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear that with the departure of Nikki Haley, you're losing the last of the traditional Republican politicals um, in that cabinet, right? The people who would have considered themselves uh, wanting to claim claim the mantle of Reagan in the international arena and believing in international organizations, seeing Russia as a threat, to people who are just willing to enable whatever it is the president wants to do, regardless of what they've seen in the past. Um, the exception, remaining exception to that is is Secretary Mattis. And I think, as you noted, it's not clear how much longer he'll be able to stay in the cabinet. But he's mostly being a caretaker to make sure that nothing terrible happens in the Department of Defense. And he's largely succeeded at that. But I think it's much harder when it comes to replacing Nikki Haley, because you could see the president and Bolton really pushing in some of this conversation about Richard Grinnell to have someone who's much more nationalistic yeah, may, may I say, by the way, as you raise the name of Rick Grinnell, um, Oyve, please continue. Yes, yes. Um, or is he going to go in a more traditional route and pick someone like Dina Powell or, you know, people have been floating the idea that he might even put his daughter in the position. It's still a Senate-confirmed position, so I think there are some real questions about who's qualified for that job. Well, isn't uh, there a law that prohibits you from putting nepotistic choices into a Senate-confirmed position? I think yes. there is, right? Yes, courtesy, right, President Kennedy, who 
his appointment of Robert Kennedy into the attorney general position was what led Congress to do that. Um, so there are people like Dina Powell who are considering the position, and she would be a much more um, moderate choice for that. Mm-hmm. But I think the bigger question is, you know, where is Trump going and where is he going to go if he's facing a Democratic Congress? Because a number of the things that he is trying to do on paper seem like they might find sympathy on the far left of the Democratic Party. And, and frankly, if he were to do them slightly differently across a majority of the Democratic Party, right? I think there's no one who thinks that talking to North Korea is a terrible idea, just that many people think that he should actually be getting specific, measurable, verifiable concessions for the North Koreans in, in reaction to talking. And there's some sense that his talk about burden sharing and getting allies to pay more of their share of the global security costs is welcome. Um, and potentially, you know, there are questions about what he might do with Afghanistan, were he to withdraw from there or ratchet down the U.S. commitments in Iraq. Those are things that the progressive peace community has been arguing for for a long time. The problem is the way in which Trump chooses to do that, right? He does that with a very bellicose attitude, unnecessarily punching allies in the eye, and at the same time arguing for ever higher levels of defense spending, while at the same time trying to argue that we're safer around the world. It's this weird sort of contrarian approach to national security. Let's arm ourselves to the teeth for no good reason. Um, And I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays, because clearly a Democratic majority in the House is not going to be interested in increasing defense spending at the expense of domestic programs, um, even as they might welcome a less interventionist U.S. approach around the world. You've spent a lot of time on the Hill. Um, You've worked both in the House and the Senate side. If the House were to go Democrat, who are the key players in the new constellation? And what do you think their priorities are going to be? So if the House goes Democratic, I think it'll be really interesting to watch Adam Smith, who would likely be the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. He's facing a challenge from his left this election cycle. So while he's generally a moderate, thoughtful, um, institution-oriented Democrat, it's possible that he's going to have to take a much more uh, vocal position on things like reducing the nuclear weapons arsenal, um, the, ratcheting down the U.S. involvement in Yemen and support for the Saudis. These are places that might put him in conflict with the Trump administration. Um, I think then the other big player to watch here is Adam Schiff and whether or not he stays as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and then what kind of investigation he conducts into Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2016 election and potential ongoing connections between the Trump administration and Russia. Uh any other uh, on the international affairs front? I mean, I, you know, I, th- I think actually, let me pick up on something you said earlier. One of the great differences, I think, is going to turn on an issue that's really in the news right now, which is Saudi Arabia. If this Khashoggi thing turns out 
the way the Turks are saying it did, which is a team of hitmen come in, kill somebody, chop them up, put them in a box and ship them out of the country. Uh, and, and the president continues as he has to sort of tiptoe around it and be a little bit ginger and say he didn't like it, but that he didn't really know anything when obviously he knew more than he was saying. Uh, this the, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, for example, could become a flashpoint between the parties and both houses of, of the Congress. Would you agree with that? I think that's right. And you see the left getting increasingly concerned about the Saudi Arabian involvement in the Yemeni civil war. Um, some of their strikes have inflicted massive amounts of casualties on civilians, this strike against the school bus. Um, And while there are real national security threats that emanate from Yemen and AQAP, for many years, the U.S. was able to manage that threat without getting dragged into the broader civil war. And now with the Saudi involvement in that, it's become more problematic. Saudi Arabia has always been a problematic ally of the U.S., you look back at the 9-11 attackers, their support for Wahhabist madrasas and the export of more extreme views of Islam throughout the world, some of their own repressive behavior inside their country. But the U.S. has always tread gingerly on Saudi Arabia because of its role in the Middle East and the counterbalancing role it plays with Iran, which is also causing mischief throughout the Middle East. Um, I think that increasingly their more extreme behavior will force people in the U.S. to pick sides, and they're not acting in a way that makes it easier for a Democratic majority to hear them out or stand with them. They're going to have to change the way that they're operating if they want to continue to maintain an open door on the left side of the aisle. Well, let's just wrap up in a minute or two here. But, you know, continuing in this vein, let me rattle off a couple areas where I think you're likely to see the House move in a direction that's substantially different from where it's been and cause these kind of fault line tensions. I think probably will happen around the Palestinians and not embracing the kind of hard pro-Israel view of the Trump administration. I think there will be pushback in the House on taking the very hard anti-Iran stance of the the Trump administration. I think uh, there may be some skepticism uh, that he hasn't gotten yet uh, on North Korea, as he tries to propel towards a deal, but there's a lot of evidence that the North Koreans are building new nuclear warheads. Um, I think there will be pushback for purely political reasons on 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 some of his trade deals, because I think the Democrats are a little bit allergic to that, although they don't want to go to catastrophe either. Uh, I think the, the House, you'll see a lot more concern about issues like global warming, where the, the you, you, you won't see that uh, out of the White House. Do you think those are right? And have I missed some? I think that those are right. I think that there are additional areas where you'll see greater congressional pushback. Um, Funding for the State Department, for one. You've seen the Trump administration try to really cut back on diplomatic funding and funding to international organizations. The Senate has put some of that back, but with the House in Democratic control, I think you'll see much more support for 
diplomatic tools over military tools. And I do think you'll see much more tension over Trump administration requests for more military spending. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I guess the, the, the concluding point here is we are watching the post-election um, situation crystallize a little bit. And although we've still got four weeks to go and a lot of things can happen in that election, and clearly we're the Democrats by a long shot to win the Senate, things would change pretty radically. Um, uh, even the Democrats winning the House is going to change the lay of the land on foreign policy and national security. Uh, and of course, a plethora of investigations into Trump to come. Uh, yeah, I would also say, I think one of the things that will really change the environment for Democrats after this election is that you will start to see after the election a number of Democrats who are going to challenge Trump for the presidency in 2020 try to stake out their ground. And so while traditionally Democrats would want to focus on domestic policy issues, right, health care, taxes, education, a number of them will be trying to prove their foreign policy chops. And so I would expect to see, especially in the Senate, but to a lesser extent the House, a number of them trying to find pet issues and really push them forward. And by the way, who's going to be the Democratic candidate for president in 2020? Oh, if I knew that <laughs> now, I would place a big bet and not tell anyone. Yeah, I just was wondering if you knew because everybody, I, everybody I talk to has no idea and says there's 35 people out there and um, and I think that's right. I think a lot of the ones who are coming from the hill will try to do that. There are, however, of course, mayors out there um, and a couple of governors who think maybe it shouldn't come out of Washington and some business people and and that poses a whole different set of issues. Yeah, I think uh, everyone should be taking a closer look at Mitch Landrieu. You know something? I'll tell you something. I go out, I travel around, I talk to people, I try to ask intelligent questions all across the United States, meet some fairly influential people for reasons I don't know why they're meeting with me, but I meet with them. And I say a similar question. The name that I hear the most is Mitch Landrieu. And, and that's kind of weird, right? Because Mitch Landrieu is not maybe front of mind for a lot of Americans. But 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 in a lot of different circles, I, I hear that. And I think there's a reason for that. I think he's a mayor, and I think he's really smart, and I think he's got that kind of Bill Clinton thing where he actually connects to a crowd in an emotional way, not an intellectual way, um, and, is, and, and, is a, and is a pretty impressive candidate. Do you find guys like that coming in and sort of sipping at the wells of information that places like Third Way have to offer? So Mitch Landrieu came to our conference in Columbus and gave a very impressive talk about his experience as a mayor and uh, his decision to take down a lot of the Confederate statues. Um, but I think that he is someone who really understands race relations in this country in a way that Many other politicians in Washington do not, coming from a city that has been welcoming but has its own challenges on, on race. And I do think mayors tend to have a little bit more granular understanding of how solutions get implemented in this country. I've worked for a lot of senators. I've worked for a lot of House members. Um, and sometimes the conversation can get a little abstract. That's a very good set of insights. And I and folks out there, 
you know, it's impossible to predict where we'll be in two years, but definitely Mitch Lander is a guy to watch. Mika, thank you very, very much for this. Uh, folks, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, sign up, join up, support what we're doing. We really appreciate it. And you get more stuff like this, which you don't get anywhere else. And uh, we're grateful for Mika for joining us and, and come back again soon. All of you. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.